Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring Let freedom ring This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. That was Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring. We appreciate Tommy as he opens each episode, inviting us to ignite and launch our most elaborate freedom dreams. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malik Alim and I are gathered here with you for our seminar on freedom. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling all justice seekers and freedom fighters, and we're tuned into the big and agitating questions. What is freedom, and how do we get free? Where do we come from, and where do we go from here? We're gathered together in this fugitive space, looking uneasily at the world we've inherited and busy in projects of repair and revolution. As future ancestors were broadcasting today from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, a conundrum wrapped in a contradiction, this place of outsized and crazy complexity built by the hands of immigrants and the hopeful masses arriving in the Great Migration. These lands, stewarded by many peoples and lineages, ancient and contemporary home to indigenous peoples and nations, including the Three Fires Confederacy. We acknowledge them all and thank them as we, justice seekers and freedom fighters, organizers and activists, remember and honor a history of stolen land and resources, a history of genocide, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. Today's poem is Lady Freedom Among Us by Rita Dove. The occasion of this poem was that Rita Dove was in Lower Manhattan in Battery Park, looking across the water at the Statue of Liberty, but directly in her line of vision was a homeless woman, and that inspired this poem. Don't lower your eyes or stare straight ahead to where you think you ought to be going. Don't mutter, oh no, not another one. Get a job, fly a kite, go bury a bone. With her old-fashioned sandals, with her leaden skirts, with her stained cheeks and whiskers and heaped-up trinkets, she has arisen among us in blunt reproach. She has fitted her hair under a hand-me-down cap and spruced it up with feathers and stars. Slung over her shoulder, she bears the rainbowed layers of charity and murmurs, all of you, even the least of you. Don't cross to the other side of the square. Don't think another item to fit on a tourist agenda. Consider her drenched gaze, her shining brow. She who has brought mercy back into the streets and will not retire politely to the potter's field, having assumed the thick skin of this town. It's gritted exhaust, it's sunscorch and blear. She rests in her weathered plumage, big-boned, resolute. Don't think you can forget her. Don't even try. She's not going to budge. No choice but to grant her space, crown her with sky, for she is one of the many, and she is each of us. That's Rita Dove, Lady Freedom Among Us. 
Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, where we encourage you to write a short, authentic piece from nowhere. The nowhere of our freedom seminar, the nowhere of the underground, and the nowhere of utopia. So this is a moment to put words on the page without second guessing, inviting surprising new awarenesses to pop into your head, unexpected, unannounced. Here's today's prompt. In your moral universe, that is, in the basic sense of moral order or ethical behavior you were raised in or have been constructing for yourself, what responsibility do you have for approximate stranger in distress? Okay, start writing. We'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Our next not-so-regular feature is a Freedom Chronicle by me, Malik Aleem. I hate throwing away shoes. Any clothes, really, but shoes in particular. And I knew these milk-soaked Air Max 90s I just bought would not make it back to Chicago from Cleveland in the trunk of an Accord. Not in July. It was 2015 at the end of the first movement for Black Lives National Convening. I was in attendance with my new comrades from the Chicago chapter of an organization called the Black Youth Project 100. We met hundreds of fellow young Black freedom fighters from all over the country who come together to strategize, heal, and push back on the police violence, the economic violence, and gender violence explosion that reinvigorated the generations-long Black freedom movement. I was just three months removed from my first protest-related arrest, and I had no plans to repeat that experience, especially so far from home in Cleveland. My comrades and I were on a high departing from the closing plenary of our convening when we encountered a kid in handcuffs surrounded by police. RTA police tell us they removed a drunk 14-year-old from a bus and were about to transport him to the police station. At the same time, the Black Lives Matter National Conference in Cleveland just ended. Folks were asking what was going on. All of us just seen what happened to Sandra Bland in Texas. And so forgive us if we're a little concerned. Within minutes, a few officers turn into several and a few activists turn into a crowd. And they began to form a um, kind of barricade around the cars, telling them to urge, urging the police officers to let the um, young man go. But they wouldn't. And then when they were linking arms and just kind of doing chants and things like that, they started, pe um, one of the police officers began pepper spraying just the whole line. They were like, got to the ground, they were on the ground, like covering their faces. He was still like macing them like towards the ground. never been maced or pepper sprayed before, and the moment between realization and sensation felt like a lifetime, like waiting for the pain receptors to fire after stubbing your toe. I stumbled out of the street and into the grass where a woman from the group I travel with, we'll call her C, caught me in her arms. 
I was blinded, but I could hear people screaming. I added my own voice to the ruckus, pleading for water to rinse the poison from my eyes. Almost immediately, I began to discern some of the yelling voices, warning against the use of water and urging able bodies to run to the nearby grocery store for milk. We needed to pour milk into our eyes to neutralize the poison. As I writhed on the ground in agony, I remembered I was wearing contact lenses. I begged C to help me remove them and quickly regretted it. As soon as air hit my pupils, the pain intensified. As I screamed, C quickly explained to me that she was still nursing her young daughter and that she could deliver milk more quickly than the store runners if I let her. I quickly obliged and she administered the cooling substance directly from her breast. I was already crying, but her selfless act of care for me, her fallen comrade, unleashed a reservoir of emotion from deep within me. The night before, a group of us had gotten tattoos from an Asada Shakur quote that BYP 100 had adopted as an organizational mantra. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. It is our duty to win. We must love and respect each other. We must love and respect each other. We have nothing to lose but our change. We have nothing to lose but our change. I see precious breast milk healed my eyes. The pain of the fresh ink on my rib cage resurged into my consciousness as if on cue, and I understood the words more clearly than I'd ever understood them before that moment. Police say they escorted the juvenile to a waiting EMS and then released him to his mother. But for this crowd, the tears and questions still flowing. As we packed up the cars and buses to head back to Chicago, I reflected on the fact that even though we had been brutalized, we had accomplished our goal of making sure that our baby brother, whom we did not know, was able to return home safe to his family. Indeed, we must love and protect each other. Indeed, we have nothing to lose but our chains. It's time now for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours, where we visit with comrades and co-conspirators who can help us think more deeply and clearly about the world we share, name this political moment with clarity and hope, and take the necessary steps toward creating an irresistible movement for freedom and justice. We release our most radical imaginations, and we ask both what's going on and then what is to be done. I'm excited to be joined in conversation with Malik Alim, sitting here next to me. We can be next to each other now that we are all vaccinated and ready to go. And with Ashley Woodard Henderson, an activist and organizer, extraordinarily innovative educator, an intensely forward thinker and powerful doer. And for several years now, co-executive director of the Highlander Research and Education Center, one of the most storied social justice and activist centers in the country. Ashley Woodard Henderson, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here with y'all. I'm jealous that y'all are in the same room, but I'm excited to be. Not only that, we're eating chocolate-covered raisins, so that should make you a bit more Just, jealous. It's cruel. Oh, it's cruel. I know, <laughs> but I'm a little jealous because you're at Highlander. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I've always, it's not only a storied center, but it's a place I have some very, very rich and vivid memories of. Let me ask you to get us started. I wanted to ask you, 
kind of how you get into the movement. Did you come out of a political family? Did you have an event that shook your world? How did you come to be the activist and leader that you are? Yeah, I love this question because I think in in the reflecting, what I'm what I'm realizing is that there were multiple coming into movement moments for me. Um, but but I think you know to start at the beginning of the story, I totally got it honest. Um, you know, I was born in Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, which is in the Tennessee River Valley. Hey, um, yeah. shout out to Nuga. Listen, yeah, my, my I am a, are in Chattanooga too. I'm a Chattanooga supremacist. Um, I'm a Southern Excellent. supremacist in general, but like in the South, I think Chattanooga is where it's at. Um, we might be cousins. You know, we, we I, might we, be cousins. like actually for real. <laughs> it's it's probable. Um, but yeah, born and raised, I've I've lived outside of the state of Tennessee only six months of my life. And in those six months, I was I was Bill's neighbor. Um, and uh, yeah, I lived in I lived I lived literally in the in the Chicago SNCC house. Um, oh, my. Yeah. How about um, that? What year was that? When was that? Gosh, early 2000s. I helped start the Chicago SNCC archive with like right. Fanny Rushing and Sylvia Fisher and Mimi Shaw Hayes and all of that, that incredible group of humans. Um, They're amazing. And so we met way back then. Way back then. In fact, it was right as some of the like 21st century, uh, you know, sort of vigor around restarting up students for uh, SDS chapters. um, That's right. Was starting to happen. And uh, it just so happened that I happened to be in Chicago as, as young people were we're saying like we needed to be fighting for democracy um, and we needed to actually have some left leaning politics around what that that fight looks like. Um, and it just so happened that there's a high concentration of people that, you know, created that infrastructure. And so, uh, you know, it was at the time where like Iraq vets against the war were touring in Chicago. SDS was having reunions in Chicago. Uh, you know, it was after Jim Foreman had passed. And so, uh, you know, Chicago SNCC was like, we need to actually document how important we were to the development of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee as a as an organization, a chapter, a Friends of SNCC chapter that decided that they weren't only going to fundraise to send money down south, but that they were going to fight white supremacy and anti-black racism uh, in the city of Chicago themselves. That they they would be remiss only to talk about racism in the south and not fight the white supremacist violence that was happening, particularly to young black folks uh, in in Chicago. So. Uh, yeah, that, that's, it was it was great until it got cold and then I went back south. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm glad you brought up SNCC because I, I had just recently, like last week, been doing some research into to that era, uh, original era, and uh, you know, because a lot of some, a lot of times the nuance of of how the, you know these groups were positioned in relation to each other within the movement uh, gets lost in the retelling of those histories and. Um, you know, SNCC isn't known as as one of the more militant, you know, wings or groups, uh, parts of that time of of the of the movement. But can you talk a little bit about like the, I guess the the timeline or or how the organization has changed? Yeah, I mean, SNCC. I'd I'd be remiss not to mention that like part of the reason that SNCC is so powerful is that it was it was leaning in to an opportunity for young people to really lead in a way that was very clear that you couldn't be community organizing if you were not ingrained in community. And that the way that you do that, particularly if you're going to a community that is not your home, is to learn from the experts on the ground, which is not you, right? So I think people think about Freedom Summer as like, oh, these people came from colleges all over the country, which wasn't Mm. all the way true. Most of these people, in fact, a lot of these people have been kicked out of college for being like, like, you know, activists. 
Um, and so they went down and it wasn't like, you know, I'm sure it was messy. It wasn't perfect because humans are imperfect. Uh, but the reality was, is that they weren't going down saying, let us save you, you endangered backward country black person. What they were doing was going and saying like, hey, y'all are brilliant. How can we work together to make impossible things possible? Um, and that's that's what they did. Um, they did it not because they were so special as the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee or because they were so left. They did it because they were ingrained in communities that knew what the solutions to their, their issues were. And what's beautiful to me about CAF SNCC, the Chicago Area Friends of SNCC, is that it also then created movement infrastructure that was bigger than just regional infrastructure in the South, right? Like what, what it meant for Jimmy Travis to be shot and attacked, almost killed by the Ku Klux Klan in, in Mississippi to be able to go and stay in Hyde Park and recover and not have to be stressed out about, you know, being killed while in recovery, right? What it yeah. meant for Curtis Muhammad to, to be able to go there, what it meant to, for Fannie Lou Hamer to be able to get resources from there, right? The, the relationship that it built between folks that were continuing to be uh, in the Southern freedom movement of, of the 20th century and what it meant to be children of the great migration, Black people who had, had fled the South for all sorts of reasons that, that included anti-Black violence, but also included economic opportunity, um, that, that those folks also were in relationship with these Southerners in, in ways that were not transactional, but transformative is really a special story. So for anybody mm -hmm. that's listening that is based in Chicago, I cannot encourage you enough to go and check out the, the SNCC archive at the Carter G. Woodson Library. Um, it's just, it, it changed my life. There's stuff in there that I was like, y'all sure y'all want everybody to know this before <laughs> y'all, you know, go on to glory. And they were like, yeah, like the next, the ne they made a conscious choice to not put it at like a university uh, where only students mm -hmm. and faculty would be able to get it. Uh, they put it in a, one of the most, most utilized public libraries where everyday grassroots folks, I think 60 to 70% of the people that go to the Carter G. Woodson library, at least at that time, we're folks that that live in community. We're regular, schmegular, everyday people. So still true. But you know, I think you're, the point you make about um, the the volunteers in Freedom Summer going south, knowing that they were going to learn from the people. I mean, Ella Baker's speech to the folks when they were at Miami University, getting ready to go south, and Ella Baker said, "You may think." because you're at Princeton or the University of Michigan or whatever, that you have a lot to teach these folks. Believe me, you have a lot to learn from these folks. And, and, and I don't know if you know this, Malik, but, you know, SNCC was really founded at, at Highlander. And that's where Ash is the, is the co-director, right? Just I so mean, that really was the founding of meeting, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, there's, that a, there's a lot of relationship. I think, you know, SNCC folks would say that the, the organization really started like 60, I guess 61 years ago now at Shaw University. Um, right. but, but what's also true simultaneously is that a lot of SNCC folks made their home um, and were able to have like strategic conversations in places like Highlander. So, um, you know, for example, you know, John Lewis had his first integrated meal <laughs> at Highlander. Um, you know, Andrew Young came through Highlander, right? Like a lot of these folks, either in the SELC side of things, uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference or SNCC, uh, spent a lot of time in conversations with each other and getting rest and respite at, at Highlander, right? We've been pr bringing people together uh, to figure things out and to to be safe and find sanctuary and rest and respite since 1932. You know, I think that the frustrating thing, to be real honest with y'all, is like most of us don't grow up knowing SNCC or knowing about Highlander, right? That's not that's not a particularly normal thing. And when it's, you know, in regards to my story, it's like 
I was born into a, a movement family. Sure. You know, my mom was a member of the black or she would say is like, you know, Black Panther Party didn't go right nowhere. Um, still a but, member. <laughs> but the, she would say she is a member of the Black Panther Party, uh, the original one. And my father, uh, who was from Memphis, my mother was from the county, um, but my my dad was from West Tennessee. His people are from North Memphis, like Kilmichael and Sunflower County in, in, in Memphis. My mom's people are from North Georgia and Southeast Tennessee. And um, the, you know, the, the folks that fled on my dad's side to the North went to Chicago. The folks that fled on my mom's side went to Ohio. Um, and so, you know, they, I was born in the 80s and and why that matters, why it's the, the sort of painful irony of being born in Chattanooga as a black queer working class woman was that at the time in the early 80s, a black man named Wadey Settles had been murdered by the Chattanooga Police Department. Um, it's not lost on me that some of you might know about it because it created like a United Nations investigation. It was a big, you know, imagine the George Floyd of the 1980s. This this stuff we've been fighting is not new, right? It's not new. It wasn't new in 2014. It wasn't new in 2012. It continues to be an issue that our folks generationally are dealing with. And so uh, Wadey Settles gets murdered in a Chattanooga jail and there, you know, people are in the streets. Maxine Cousins uh, and Annie Thomas and others, uh, Lorenzo Irvin, the black anarchist, right? All these people, Mukasa Ricks, the man who coined black power, all of these folks are Chattanoogans, right? Um, and they're pissed off that this black man has been murdered with impunity. In fact, at the time, they wouldn't even release the names of the police officers involved in the murder. It just so happened that my dad um, was in the black arts movement and uh, was was really about that life of building black communications infrastructure. So black radio was like, I think it was, so to, you know, I'm biased, but it's like the height of the black radio era. You know, it was mm -hmm. like black people were starting to own radio stations. They had their own shows. He was a news broadcaster. Um, and so he got, had an anonymous source that told him the names of the officers. Um, my father went into the wow. news booth, named the officers who killed Wadey Settles live on his show, uh, wow. came out of the, the studio and was fired. Um, my mom wow. lost her job shortly thereafter. Um, and then they found out they were pregnant with me. So I was wow. literally born into this organization called Concerned Citizens for Justice that was started by the daughter um, of, of Wadey Settles and, her, and her, her best friend, Annie Thomas and Annie's two teenage daughters. This black woman uh, started this organization that still exists today, um, fighting the same fight to abolish the police um, and doing that in a black-led multiracial formation. So I, I came into movement through proximity. That's true. You know, my mom was in Operation Push, you know, it's again, like the Chicago connects. Sure. You know, Jesse won Tennessee when he ran for president. At least that's, that's what I always grew up being told. And so like there was a strong operation push rainbow, Co rainbow coalition presence in the, in the city of Chattanooga. Um, so I grew up getting dragged to operation push meetings and like going to protest and, and that sort of thing. Um, but to be honest, I think that I just saw like our families making a lot of sacrifices for the sake of mm -hmm. everybody uh, which was was a blessing. And sometimes it felt a little burdensome. But I did not know my mom was in the Black Panther Party until my sophomore year in high school. Um, and and wow. I say that because what's real is that like even in the 20, like the latter part of the 20th century and then the earliest parts of the 21st century, black, black activists and and frankly, Bill could speak to this white activists that were involved in radical and revolutionary efforts back in the 60s and 70s 
could still face consequences of what it meant to be a politicized person in that time Absolutely. period, right? COINTELPRO didn't just go away because the 80s came, right? Mm. Um, and so, you know, she was protecting her comrades and colleagues from her little kids that, you know, would just be excited that somebody was at the house and not knowing that that was like something that we didn't need to be spreading around. Uh, yeah. I found out that my mom was a Black Panther because my brother, we had just moved into the first house that we ever owned. And my brother was snooping through my parents' boxes in the in the garage of the house and found her her membership card. Um, and then we promptly got in a lot of trouble for going through my mom's stuff. Was that a conscious decision of hers to keep from you? I think so. Siblings? Yeah, I think she was. For she what was, reason? It was organizational discipline. <clears throat> you know what I mean? She was <clears throat> like still in in relationship with with grassroots organizers who had done incredible amounts of work for black liberation that she was making sure were protected and, 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 and protecting us. Right. Ignorance is bliss. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think it was intentional. And then we found out. And of course, the first thing I did was go to school and be like, my mama's a black Panther. You know what I mean? Yeah. And literally <laughs> that week, our phone got shut off. And then when it, when it got turned back on, I could hear people talking, it would click and stuff. It was like the immediacy of the consequence of knowing, of knowledge, right, was, was, was wow. real in my house. So that's, that's how, that's definitely like, you know, to Bill's question of like, how did you come into it? I definitely got it honest. But what's real is where, where I felt like I got convicted, where I got my calling to be in this, this sort of lifelong commitment to, to social justice and, and economic justice and like building, like saving the world work mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and being transformed in that work was uh, my senior year in high school. I went to a PWI, I went to a predominantly white high school in the county. And, you know, I grew up in a family where, you know, by any means necessary meant by all the means. So we voted, mm -hmm. you know, black <laughs> people to vote in as people in the country, particularly in the South. And so my granddad, my mom's dad ran our voting precinct. Uh, my grandmother and my mom and I would all get, you know, bundled up and we'd go to the precinct and I'd fill in their ballots. Right. So I, I you know, mm. I was like, I'm about to turn 18. It wasn't like, oh, I can smoke cigarettes and I can get into the club. It was like, <laughs> oh, I'm about to get my voter registration card. Like y'all not ready for the democracy I'm about to build. Right. <laughs> um, Very good. I, like I'm literally that kid that got my voter registration card, like in a box that was gift wrapped with a bow on top. Like it was that was me. <laughs> That was me, right? Before I was the revolutionary that was like, that's some liberal shit. I was all about it. Um, <laughs> and now I'm No, now but you're I'm right. Like, I mean, all means. We'll take all means. It's all the means, the ballots, right? Now the bullet, I'm in everything. that middle, but I, I was the pendulum yeah. swinging before. So right? I got you. I got um, you. And I was real on the like, voting will save. Like if we just voted, right? Because um, I, I saw what it meant in our small town for black mm -hmm. people to have electoral power. I did, right? Right. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I was psyched about it. And my, my high school was bringing in like conservative, rich white folks to register other conservative, rich white folks to vote. Right. And they weren't talking to me and it made me mad. Um, and so my mom told me to call Operation Push. And I did. Sweet. Um, the chair Sweet. at the time was this black man named Johnny Holloway, who is still, you know, somebody I give a lot of credit for where I am today. And he was like, it's God that you called me. I was like, you're gonna have to break that down, brother. And he was like. I just got off the phone with a guy named Ben Cheney. He was like, you know who that is? I was like, nope. He was like, have you heard of Cheney Gibbon and Schwarner? I was like, nope. He was like, have you seen the movie Mississippi Burning? I was like, no, I have not. <laughs> um, can you just tell me who he is? And so he, he hit me on game about these three civil rights workers, one who was a black Mississippian and two who were Jews from New York. 
and that they were, you know, organizing and base building and doing political education and registering white people to vote in Neshoba County, Mississippi in 1964, and then were murdered for it uh, by like a collusion between white supremacist organizations like the Citizenship Councils, like the like the, the Ku Klux Klan, uh, like law enforcement mm. and the state um, elected officials mm-hmm. um, all conspired together to kill these three civil rights workers, particularly Mickey Schwerner and, 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 and James Earl Cheney. And Ben was the younger brother of James Cheney. That's right. Um, yeah. Is is the younger brother of James Cheney, and he right. had just gotten off the phone with Johnny because he was going to reenact the Freedom Ride in two thousand four. Um, he was going to do a massive voter registration and education trip on these on these rides. We were going to stop in spaces to do that work in community and relationship with community organizations that were on the ground. And at that point, there was there were many more people that were involved in the murder of his brother who had never been convicted. Um, or even seen a day for real in court beyond like some mm-hmm. civil rights violation stuff. Um, and he wanted to to tell the story, right? Mm-hmm. That there were still like white dudes living real good lives with grandkids and stuff. Uh, <laughs> some of them very wealthy um, who, who were able to build that wealth after they murdered three people right. for building the right. civil rights movement, right? And so- Uh, So Johnny told me that if I helped him organize the stop in Chattanooga, that he would send me on the ride for free. So like teenage Ashley was like, yes, I'm trying to do that. Uh, (laughs) I'm trying to do that. And that's, that was the beginning of the roller coaster ride. It was like when I, my red pill, blue pill experience, Um, we registered the most people in the freedom ride for justice in 2004 in my city. Um, And we, you know, I met, that's, that's how I met Hollis Watkins. That's how I met Diane Nash. Um, also wow. a great Chicagoan. It's um, true. Legends. Legends. Um, that's how, I, met, that's how the, I got caught up in SNCC. And that was the beginning. That's how I found out about Highlander. It was the beginning of the so end. So great. You know, and the connections are so profound, as you're saying. So for example, I mean, the right to vote. Isn't that what we're fighting for a hundred years ago, 50 years ago, yeah. 40 years ago? And look where we are. Yeah. And w- when you describe this effort to get folks registered and, and I'm with you, we use all means necessary. We use everything. And the thing about the vote is I've always said, of course, um, you know, we're not going to vote our way to, to fundamental transformation. Nah. On the other hand, to give it up, to allow them to steamroll over us is a huge mistake. So, Blood has been spilled to get this right to vote. It's still being spilled. And and we're at a new, I think, you know, breaking point around it. And we have to organize. We have to get busy. Is Highlander taking up that work partly? Yeah. I mean, I tell people all the time that like Highlander is a school. So we don't pick the issues. We just we just provide the program to the students. Right. That's that's all we do. Um, and so absolutely. I mean, both, uh, you know, as a southern organization in a state with a Tea Party supermajority that is kicking in the teeth of our people um, and as a Southerner across across the largest geographic region where the highest concentration of black people live, um, we would be remiss not to be, you know, in, in movement accompaniment support relationships with grassroots organizations across the region that are doing voter uh, education and registration work, GOTV work. You know, it was criminalized in the state of Tennessee. You could go to jail for registering people to vote. Last year, it, right? It's coming um, back, right? You know exactly. what I'm saying? Like it's coming, this, it's, it's yeah. not it's not like oh the 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 bygone days of voter suppression. It's right here, live and well. Um, but also through our relationship to the movement for Black Lives, you know, we sit on the the electoral justice project uh, table and and uh, the policy table. You know, to me, part of the part of what you said is so smart, Bill, because it's like 
Not only, it, it, yes, it is about conceding territory. And I refuse to concede territory, any tactical intervention to the right or to white supremacy mm-hmm. or to capitalism mm-hmm. or, you know, period, right? Both because it's not strategic, it's not smart, but also because in the vacuums that we create by saying we're not dealing with that, somebody fills the vacuum. There's no neutrality, right? So if we mm-hmm. say we're not going to deal with it, then guess what? We get exactly what we've got, a 50-year strategy by white evangelicals who didn't want to integrate their seminaries that now have created a tea party that now are like, you know, the, the not even so covert dog whistles, but overt organizing of grassroots white people to think that it is in their best interest to not believe that Black Lives Matter, to not believe that boundaries and borders are man-made and make no sense, that believe that it's their civic duty to go fight and kill other brown people and poor people in countries they didn't even know were on a map, right? So when we concede that territory, somebody feels it. The other thing that doesn't make sense about the concession of of the tactical intervention is that all, I think the the thing that we learned, hopefully, my hope for social movements, is that the thing that we learned last year in particular is that we have to have a multi-tactical strategy, maybe even more than one. Because quite frankly, if all we know how to do is to protest, and I say that as somebody got a arrest record as long as my arm, right? That all we, if all we do is protest, then we actually aren't governing. Right. Mm. We're demanding something of someone else that is governing. Right. We're shutting things down to try to force the hand of the people that actually have some more power. Right. Governing power. On the flip side, if all I do is organize and base build (laughs) and create demands through my organizing and base building, I'm still not governing. Right. (laughs) I'm, I'm learning how to build enough people power to force the hand of the people that are. But even if it's not that tactic. Right. Like if I'm a policy wonk. I'm writing policy. I might be advocating for policy, right? But I'm not, I'm not legis- I'm not doing it, right? So, mm. so ultimately we need all of these pieces because they work, they work in a cycle. And I think that what Highlander offers is reminding people of the spiral, right? That you you do some investigation, you utilize these tactics, you see the patterns, you add more information, you sum up the practice and you do it again. I mean, it's not, you know, the Marxists on the collar like, oh yeah, it's like. Theory practice summation over and over again. Yes, it is. I appreciate the the kind of the institutionalization of right the, that idea because like what I've understood in my experience over the, the past five years organizing in Chicago, um, you know, p- people who are organizing in Chicago understand the value of those different moving parts mm-hmm. in any campaign in any larger movement. Um, but we don't really have the institutional kind of structure, you know, that has the integrity to be able to, to move that forward and, and hold the different pieces and kind of make sure that they're, they're, um, intertwined. So I don't know if, if we need to be trying to replicate those institutions, but I am, I am glad that that exists for y'all in the South. Yeah. I mean, and, and what's real is we work with a lot of orgs in Chicago. I, the thing, the thing about, and the, let me tell you, like, I believe as goes the South, so goes the nation is a fact, not an opinion, right? That is true. I also am a Southern supremacist, so I think we do a lot of shit well here that people have a lot to learn from if they actually want to see freedom. Um, you know, it's like if you want to beat back white supremacy and capitalism, the people that have been doing that really well for a very long time are Southerners, right? Um, however, you know, when I look at some of the really incredible and innovative work that's been successful over the last few years, I can't help but think about Chicago, right? It's like, Scholars for Social Justice and like the leadership of folks like Barbara Ransby has been transformative to movement infrastructure. 
When I think about even some of the transformative policy work that the Movement for Black Lives has done, one of the places that we've seen it come to fruition is in Illinois, right? We wrote the Breathe Act. Illinois was the first state to pass it on the state level, right? So shout out to your work, Malik. Shout out to folks like Richard Wallace. Shout out to folks like Amara. Shout out to folks like Barbara Ransby, right? Like y'all were faster than the feds, right? I will say the the qualified, we still working on qualified immunity. We gonna get them though. We gonna get them. We still got got work to do, but we, yes, thank you for the Better better (laughs) than any, no other state. Like what other state got even close? And I mean, it's like, it's, it's stuff it's stuff that like would blow the minds of people if they actually took the second to see the obviousness of the absurdity. It was like, yeah. so the CPD couldn't have like, you know, guillotines. It was, you know, it was like, it was like <laughs> bananas. It was bananas yeah. what that legislation made possible. for. So I'm glad you're shouting out to Chicago the way you are. You know, it always blows my mind that we led the nation in, in abolishing the death penalty. Right. Nobody would have thought be, the day before we did that. No, that we could do it. the Chicago torture it. cases, the reparations. Exactly. I mean, reparations. Just like, you know. You know, and I mean, part of part of that is being like braggadocious about Chicago, but also Chicago ain't nothing but the up south, and I don't care what Chicago is. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, it's right. the most segregated right. city I've ever lived in. <laughs> it's it's like you know y'all the churchiest people I know. Y'all got yeah. Southerners galore up there. Um, yeah, so shout out you, to the you up lived, south. <laughs> you, you lived in Hyde Park, which uh, Mike Nichols called the most integrated neighborhood in Chicago, black and white, shoulder to shoulder against the poor. So I mean, it's got that problem too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was wild. I lived, um, I lived in Hyde Park. I lived, you know, just a couple of blocks behind Clanwood, and yeah, um, yeah right where and, we in the Snick yeah. House, which is still very much the Snick House. Like my apartment in that house still had mimeograph ink in the floorboards, right? Like, Damn. you know, there was, there some was people are like, listening to, some people are listening to this, Ash, are going to have to Google mimeograph ink. They'll <laughs> right, know what that is. <laughs> it but, was like this old say, machine that you had to crank to yeah, get the, get the yeah. pliers and stuff out. It was, it, imagine a printer with a crank. I want to go back to one, one thing you said for just a moment, yeah. which is you were talking about, I mean, the links are unbelievable. The fight for the vote, the fight against police murders, which is ongoing. And, and I feel like we're again at a very important turning point. But then you talked about Highlander as a school. And one of the things I remember so vividly is the pedagogy of Highlander taught me things that I I used in my work for 50 years. Yeah. And what, what I remember is that notion that you're saying about who do you have to learn from? And it's like learning from the people. So I remember going to Highlander and meetings would open with Miles saying, what do you hear? What, what are you working on? What's your question? What's your problem? And then before we'd leave, the question was always, what are you going to do when you go home? You know, and it was That's that sense it. of, and that's still it. That's a brilliant pedagogy. And it's one that I think we need to kind of highlight and and, and get out there uh, because it's an important way to teach and learn. Yeah. I mean, and and, it, and Miles was awesome, but it wasn't because he was so special. It's because he also listened to like black and brown and indigenous and, and right. working class people from not only the U.S. and particularly in the South. Right. Miles was from West Tennessee. He wasn't from Appalachia. Um, so, you know, he was around people both in the mountains, um, you know, in the, the sort of mid-south part of, of our region. Um, you know, he had been to Denmark. He had gotten to go to college. Right. Like he had learned up under folks like Paulo Freire. Like, he, you know, he was he was synthesizing. Right. Right. He was synthesizing. Um, and sometimes through that synthesis, getting way too much credit for other people's work. But, um, you know, <laughs> that happens. Right. You know, white dude was trying to undo some of his stuff. 
Um, but what's also real is that like <laughs> those questions still haven't changed. And and what he got right, and and frankly, even like the folks that were actual teachers, right? Like Septima Clark, the world's best teacher, right? Yeah. A woman who yeah. trained and taught and created educational opportunities for folks. And to the tune of like hundreds of thousands before the internet, before cell phones, right. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like when the state, when it was still illegal to have black and white people in the same room, she was doing it. And mm-hmm. she was doing it across the region before like you could just use your Amex card to like get on a flight. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like this, this black woman made impossible things possible on staff and as a board member, right? Rosa Parks right. also not someone that just trained at Highlander. She went on to serve on the board of directors and is no, and no small part, the reason why I can still to this day have a Highlander center to steward. Right. Mm-hmm. So like the, mm-hmm. the, the point that there's so many methodologies that we, 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 we don't own, right? But that we help to support people remembering so that they right. can take that new knowledge that would only exist if they sat in those rocking chairs together and shared information and shared story and shared skills and, and politically struggled with one another to create new knowledge. But like being smarter people don't necessarily save the world. And like Malik and Bill, I know y'all know that. It's like Highlander's point is not just to make smarter people. That, that's not what I mean by we're a school. The thing that is the, the, the secret in the sauce, and it's not rocket science, it's truly finger painting, is that we encourage people to not just be smarter people through the extraction of information and knowledge, but to take that knowledge that they now that they have obtained and take it home and change the material conditions of their people with it, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and usually bringing people together across difference to do that, right? It's not, it's not mm-hmm. always people who are like besties that come to Highlander. Sometimes right. it's people that have adamant disagreements with one another yes, who can yes. duke it out in the workshop center and then go home um, with, with, you know, the, the substance of what is useful. And thank, thank you for bringing that up and co- complicating the, the legacies that were fed of, of, of people like Rosa Parks, right? Because we're, we are told and, and she's referred to as the the bus lady, right? Like that yeah. is all that we get from that. Yeah. Um, further complicated by the fact that she was chosen to fill that role because of her skin tone, her, her fair complexion and her, right? But then to the, the thing that we don't know is that she went on to sustain movement work through her work at, at Highlander. And, and she that, did that work before the most, she sat down on exactly, that bus. Exactly. And, and, and <laughs> that is the was, most important part. She was doing part, radical right? and revolutionary work before the 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 intervention of the Montgomery Boys boycott, but also part of the reason that we talk about the Montgomery Boys boycott, particularly folks like my age, like younger people and folks that are younger than me, talk about the Montgomery bus boycott. Like, oh, she just sat down on a bus, is because we don't actually understand what the boycott was. Can you, can you imagine? Like, we think about boycotts where it's like you know, like the fuck Gucci campaign, right? It's like we just not. <laughs> most of us couldn't afford Gucci in the first place, right? Um, but you know, even if we could, it was like we just not gonna spend our money over there with Gucci. We gonna like get Coach Bag or whatever, right? Instead, mm-hmm. this that is not <laughs> what the Montgomery bus boycott was, right? Can you imagine for a city and ultimately for a state having the infrastructure to be able to not use public transportation for over three hundred days? Unbelievable. That's what I'm saying. It's like, actually what she did was incredible. And it's true that it was not benign, that she was a, a fair skinned older woman, you know, this, the talented 10th of, of, of Montgomery. But w- what's real is that the, 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 the sitting down, the, that was a particular direct action that sparked off the building of some incredible black movement infrastructure, not only to sustain the boycott, but also to have self-determining communities that were building their own shit, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it mattered that black taxi cab drivers were like, you ain't got to get on that bus, ma. Come over here. 
right? That I'm curious. So I'm, I'm curious what you think about the. So today, the a lot of conversations about. So I'm I'm doing work with the the budget for Black Lives Coalition yeah. in, in Chicago. We're trying to get money taken away from the Cook County Sheriff Department, the Cook County Jail, and invested in community services, services for the people, social services, public goods. Uh, and, and, stuff, yeah. Right. And and one of the pushbacks we often get from the labor kind of labor community is, you know, we can't get rid of these positions because, uh, you know, the the CO union is, is full of black and brown people. There, there are black and brown people that are filling these positions. If we you know, if we do a general strike and we ask the, the, the bus drivers and the, the train operators not to go to work. Right. We're hurting black people in that way. And and, and we're right. That the kind of idea of organized labor and, and what that means in terms of stability for black families is pitted against the idea of what we can have if we fight for the economic policies we know will kind of raise all of us up. H- how do you see that conversation now and in, in the conversation at the, the policy table of the movement for Black Lives? Yeah. So first I'm going to speak as Ashley and then I'll tell you about the policy table. So, you know, I, I think one, I think first there's no such thing as a cop union. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. I know that's, and that's, this is Ashley. Y'all can be mad at me. Don't be mad at Highlander <laughs> for that. I did that. Um, there's even though they would agree with me, <laughs> there's no such thing as a cop union. Um, and I think we need to be pushing our colleagues in the labor movement. And and, and not only us that like are, are find our home in other social movements, but also those of us that are members of these unions. Like if you are a member mm-hmm. of ASME, if you are a member of SEIU, et cetera, like you need to be telling your movement leadership that y'all don't believe in that. And, and frankly, I know that's happening. Right. I've seen the Writers Guild. Um, I've seen like the the members of Ask Me that turned up in their own conference uh, demanding that Ask Me support the Breathe Act, right, et cetera. Like I know that these 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 labor the rank and file is with us. I feel confident, but I also think we have to organize to make the conditions that we want. And I mean that I, I'm saying that for two reasons. One is like if we want labor to get rid of of cops, right, and and COs and probation officers. I'm talking about all the kinds of cops. If we really desire that, then we also have to build up and support labor to be able to sustain itself exactly. in the absence of those members. How dare I talk to to the the ask me, you know, president and be like, you got to get rid of your your cops in the union or you're not rad. And he's like, yo, like 90,000 of my dues paying members are cops. Right. It's like I actually have to build the conditions where we're supporting their organizing philosophies to get members to join that can offset the realities of the loss, too. I don't believe in just tearing shit down without a solution. But I also say that because what I what I know to be true and I I hear this because people want to call a general strike every other day Mm -hmm. is that, again, if you actually study the Montgomery bus boycott there, they had organized to make it impossible that the boycott would fail before Mm -hmm. they asked people to make that kind of a sacrifice. They had built the alternative infrastructure to be able to sustain the boycott. So for me, it's like, okay, cool. We're talking about participatory budgeting. Yes, I'm here for that. Yeah, I'm here for being like, you know, we not we don't we not trying to make a solution for these cops. Like, you know, if they if they don't want to go on general, do y'all really think that the CPD or like not even the CPD that the Cook County sheriffs were going to go on strike? Come on now. Yeah. Come on yeah. now. That's not even that's not even sound assessment to to build a strategy on. But what we do know for for fact, right, is that if we can meet the material needs of the other workers that could go on strike, if we could if we could actually 
usher them into the development and excitement around and a thoughtful strategy and thoughtful tactical interventions that that would make it worth their while. I know they would. And you know yeah. how I know because I've seen it done. Right. Yep. You know, Andrea Ritchie talks about this a lot when folks are asking, like, God, like abolition is impossible. Like, it's just so hard. Like, we couldn't get it. Right. It's <laughs> like, well, well, you know, it's only treating the harm that exists right now. Right. And what Andrea often says is that the the goals that we should be setting and the way that we should be thinking about developing strategy and movement infrastructure and relationship to abolition is what gets us a thousand miles ahead of the harm, right? Exactly. And, and all too often we think about that in terms of like state sanctioned violence against us. But what we don't think about is like, what would that mean for my strategy if I was developing something like a general strike, if I wanted to strike in Chicago? Then, Because me getting a thousand miles ahead of the harm would also be able to answer to these bus drivers how I would take care of them and their people if they were right. down on, if they were down to throw down on it, right? How I would sustain them. Right. Building the alternatives that can take right. the place. Everybody the- wants to talk about mutual aid like it's like it's uh, charity. That's not what mutual mm-hmm. aid is. No, not at all. In fact, abolitionist politics are really helpful. You think about upstate New York, where the biggest employer is the prison system in That's some right. counties. Right now, if you have an abolitionist perspective, what that does is it unleashes your imagination. That's so right. you're not stuck thinking prisoner prison guards versus auto workers. You're saying, no, we can rethink the whole notion of of what what is safety, what is justice and also what is employment. They don't have to be prison guards. It just happens. That's the world we live in. You can't accept the world we live in as a be all and end all. That's right. And I mean, as an anti-capitalist, it's also real that like, to me, you know, and we do this a lot in the Southern Movement Assembly and like building people's movement assemblies, which are, which is like a tool towards collective governance, right? Outside of the the state, which is actually where I'm trying to go, right? That's where I'm trying to be. Um, And what so often happens in those spaces is we ask the, I, every time I facilitate it, I, I basically ask the same three questions. What's the problem? What's the utopian vision? What's the most faithful next step we can take to that, to that utopian vision? Every time, every time. Mm-hmm, right. if, if you ever Gotta come to anything there. I facilitate, yeah. we probably about to do that, right? Yeah. Um, and, and folks that know me well know we do, we do it in every kind of strategy development. We do that in every kind of organizational development. We do that when we fundraise, right? Like, I, it's just so critical to my understanding of how you make change, right? So yeah. I raise it because, like, typically, if I'm I ask you what that, the problem, steal uh, it. It ain't mine. Go to peoplesmovementassemblies.org. I even, there's even a toolkit. Shout out to Stephanie Gilliu. You can literally just take it. All this stuff, like, go to defundthepolice.org. Go to interruptingcriminalization.org. Go to InfraBL. Like, None of the, go to Highlander. The methodologies and the toolkits and the curriculums are all on yes, the website. Resources. You don't even have to come. Just use it so we can be done with fighting. That's actually what I want, right? Yes, Lord. And and too often, why I raise those three questions is because too often we spend so much time on problems. In part because the, there's a lot of problems, but also in part because like we don't really know how to vision. <laughs> We're not good at it. That muscle is like is atrophied, right? We we don't get asked it. And especially if you're from a marginalized or targeted community, the expectation is that you don't do that, right? When when <laughs> the first time I frank, was doing that's it. That's what and, we're dealing with in, in, the, in totally, the campaign to end totally. money buying right now. Listen, we we, we when, don't know how to win. I did it. It's it's ironic that one of the one of the times I asked this was in the context of a a, a pan-Palestinian space, right? So it was folks mm. from Palestine. And folks that live in the U.S. but are Palestinian descendants. 
And I asked it, and this this elder from Palestine was like, that's so American. (laughs) (laughs) That's so American. You know, I I don't have time to dream, like, envision, you know, like they're bombing Gaza. You know, what are you talking about? You know, you want me to dream? They're they're bombing the neighborhood where my grandmother used to pick olives from the olive trees. And all I wanted was my grandkids to grow up in that neighborhood and swim in those streams and, you know, smell those flowers and 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 pick those olives and make olive oil and 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 and, and build stuff with olive wood and da 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 da. And about th- like about 30 seconds more. And he had just told me his utopian vision. There you go. You know what? Let me tell you one quick story. Um, Many, many years ago, Albie Sachs from the Constitutional Court uh, of South Africa, a friend, and Rashid Khalidi, a brother, a dear friend, sat in my living room, in our living room in Hyde Park, and they had a conversation. And one of the things that Albie said that was so brilliant is he said, at the height of the, of the fight against apartheid, we would sometimes call a retreat and we would go away for a week and we would not only recharge our batteries, but we'd ask ourselves, where are we going? What are we fighting for? Yeah. What are we trying to do? And he said, without that, we would have made more tactical errors and more strategic errors and, and we would have hurt our movement. We had to know where we were headed yeah. so that we had a clear guide for how we could conduct the struggle today. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, I, I think about the incredible teacher, Normal Wong, and how so often she's calling us to think about the long arc and where we are in the long arc of, of social transformation or not even just social transformation, but transformation of our world, like literally mm-hmm. all of the worlds. And and some of what she has taught me is like thinking about how there is no such thing as a defensive strategy. Mm. Say more. There's no such thing. Like if you're if you if you are always on the defense, you are never you are never actually self-determining. You're responding. Right. So when we wonder why people are so tired, it's because we've been in defense mode for a very long time. Right. So what happens then if we've spent all of our energy going up against the rock that we were defending our communities from, but not actually developing offensive strategy? It means that we might erode the rock, right? But by the time we erode it, we're so broke down that the only people making the path after the rock are the people that weren't doing the defense work, right? And that's not always our folks, right? If they've got the luxury of not being in defense mode, then that's not usually our people, right? So so if we're create if we really if if what we are saying as people of goodwill is that mm-hmm. our our purpose, our sovereign purpose, our spiritual purpose, whatever however you arrive to it, our political purpose is to build another world. Like I remember all of the chants about like another world is possible, blah, blah, right. blah. Right. Like if right. we actually believe that, how do you build that through a defensive strat? Like it's like oxymoronic, right? So what happens if we actually get to the place of really boldly, radically imagining what is like, so to get to your point, Malik, about like, so what about Infrabl? The thing that we did right. You are like, look, you are like clairvoyant or something. Because like every question we about to ask, you roll right into it. And it's beautiful. I mean, the thing that, you know, and I I don't want to be. I don't want to I don't want to lie to you all. Right. Like InfraBL has not been perfect. We are not perfect. Right. There's a lot that we have learned over the last seven years. But what I would say is that the, the things that we got right were also plentiful. Right. Mm. Um, and, and particularly when I think about like the, those initial conversations that we had in 2014 
was like, we knew that that working in silos wasn't working. Right. And and we knew that we wanted to work together. The question was how, right? Was it like we just have one shared project? Is it that we just all do our own thing, but we like shout out everybody's stuff? And and the question that I asked was like, what are the impossible things that only become possible if we do it together? Right. And and thinking about it that way actually then challenged us to think about like, well, what actually is impossible? Because some of the stuff we really could get. Right. It's like we we want cops not to kill black people and get away with it. Wow, that's not particularly impossible, right? <laughs> we want black people to have living wages and a union. Oh, again, not particularly impossible. We want to see black people building local political independence. Boom, doing it, right? We want to defund cops, right? Yada, 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 right? We want reparations. We want blah, 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 blah right? All these things, right? And so when we, when we came to development of the policy platform, the vision for black lives in 25th, I guess, well, 20, 2015, yeah, we started to write it um, and released it in, in 2016. And we're working on the second version. You've seen that the In the War on Black part, People portion of the, the, the second version has been released. Um, the reparations and, and Invest Divest and the other mm-hmm. sessions are, are coming soon. Um, but when we were developing it, we were like, okay, what are our values? Like, what are the, what are the lines of demarcation, the, the, the bottom lines that, like, we cannot cross? And it was like, well... We're anti-capitalist, y'all. Like, <laughs> we don't believe we don't believe black people can be free under capitalism. So it couldn't be policy that in any way qu- put that at question, right? We believed in black queer feminism, so it also had to be rooted in you know wanting to undermine patriarchy and misogynoir, right? We believe that you know essentially abolition is the way to go. We don't always have unity about what abolition looks like in practice in any given moment. <laughs> We might duke it out over that, right? Like we've got some people who are like, when we said abolition, we meant it like right now. And then we've got other people that are like, well, if our people are saying, you know, send Derek Chauvin to jail, we're not going to say like, those aren't our people, right? But, we're, mm-hmm. but we are going to say, we stand with the families and the community. And what we said was defund the police, abolish the police, right? We, that's, we, we're going to we're gonna meet our people where we're at, but we're going to move them to where we, where we are, right? Yeah, and that's, this is one of the existential crises of movement. Is that, you know? Always. It, it like, there is a world that exists right now that is not the world we want, right? So, you know, we debate. We debate you about gotta that. You got to get there. We that's debate about that stuff. Is. And what's real <laughs> is it there. takes all of us. Because, quite frankly, if all we ever did was just meet our people where, we, where they were at and not actually push them around being disciplined and rigorous around an actual abolitionist pra- praxis, we would also, we would be liberal, right? So it takes, right. it takes that dissent. It actually makes mm-hmm. us sharper mm-hmm. uh, that we're not monolithic, right? Um, so, but toward that point, towards our abolitionist values, we were like, we can do no harm. Like we, we believe that reformist demands are harmful. We drew a line in the sand. And so we said that like, we were against body cameras. We were like, that is, that is reform. That's a 1990s bandaid on a 2021 problem. Mm-hmm. We know that don't mm-hmm. work. And we know that that's actually y'all's way of rope doping us into just giving more money to cops. We're not stupid. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it adds to surveillance. What exactly. the hell? So we were like, what are the, we knew what we didn't want, but we, we literally spent like years working on well, what are the non-reformist reforms that are the low-hanging fruit that our people can win that gets, gets them used to winning? And what are the things that we actually deserve 
not just concede to, right? What are the demands that we really want? Um, even if people tell us, tell us it's apple pie in the sky. So when we first came out around like budgets and policing, we didn't say, we didn't jump out the gate in 2015 talking about defund the police. We came out talking about divest invest. Right. Right. And, and look, the point and, th- and think about this, like the, the perspective you have to take. Like, I, I appreciate you because you've made these lofty, big ideas, very digestible and approachable. And and how you just laid out that like simultaneously with the policing reforms that we're trying to get, like those things inform and help us get the, the, the criminal justice and court, court reform things done right like i was in a a meeting yesterday and the 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 pd of cook county said like some of the some of the things that we're trying to change in terms of the court system cannot be addressed unless we fundamentally change what the police are doing we're like we know it's it's so obvious right (laughs) it is so obvious but i mean that was that was the point right it was like and and this actually wasn't me like i have to shout out marbury stanley butts who is the reason that we have an infrabl policy table she was insistent. And I was like, yo, like, you know, that policy shit is reformist, Marbury. I'm not into it. <laughs> like, that's not my thing. I'm a revolutionary. And she was like, <laughs> you know, on some ultra, I was on some ultra left stuff. And she was like, the reason that I need you in the room is because I can write the policy. I'm a lawyer. Right. But I need people that can help us make this not on- like, yes, we want to build the policy demand. We want to build the like actual like policy language, the legislative language, but we also want to build the tools that make it useful for communities, Mm, right? mm -hmm, Because you mm -hmm. don't win it just by being like, the movement for Black Lives has this policy. Like, I wish it was that simple. We write Mm -hmm. the Breathe Act, we hand it to the legislators, they just pass it. That's not what happens. We need grassroots communities to do it, right? And then the work of getting our people to understand why this is the policy and get them behind it because so that what we did was we started with them writing it, it from the top, right? right that was right. the point. We didn't just we didn't just put the lawyers in a room say write every piece of policy that you think black people want and then we'll approve it, right? That's not what happened. We went through lip like literally weeks and months and years of my life in <laughs> meetings, on uh, phone calls fighting it out about like how we can make this legislation the best for black people. And so typically what would happen is there would be lawyers, there would be folks that are policy and advocacy experts. And then there would be like activists that were like, we actually on the ground making this shit happen. We don't think that that language is right. Or grassroots organizers that were like, yeah, that's cool. But like, how do we build people power around it? Or political educators that were like, that's great, but the language that y'all are using is totally inaccessible and nobody's going to actually care about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had this mix of of people that were actually directly impacted and engaging in the movement building work around those policy demands. So to be honest with you, the vision for Black Lives is more of a synthesis of people's policy demands than it was like a new creation. That's, That's not what it was. And even with the Breathe Act last year, very similarly, it was like, it was it was our legislative response to to all of us that had been in the streets. It was like y'all said defund. This is how you do it on the federal level. Nothing and less the, than this is what our people deserve. And the irony of it all is that we often, de- like you were saying, we often will belittle the importance of electoral politics, but we don't understand that policy is nothing without the politicians who can and will pass it. And neither is a defund demand, right? A defund yeah. demand is nothing if people aren't protesting and organizing and politically educating our people and writing the policy 
and an elected position to be able to pass it. But I've always said you got to walk, walk toward fundamental change on two legs, mobilizing, 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 and then real politics. But the way you're talking, I'm going to say you got to be an octopus, walk toward fundamental change <laughs> on right. eight legs. Or, you know, this yeah. is my thing. It's like, I think, I think I've learned a lot through M4BL and Highlander and Project South and the Southern Movement Assembly and lots of, lots of organizing experiences. And what I would say is that, like, one, people don't know what they don't know, right? Even in regards to their own identities, right? So I would have never said in 2015 that I was a person that was like, who should be in the room if you were writing policy? And I didn't know what the hell I was talking about, mm. right? So don't make assumptions about who you are or who you aren't, right? I'll give you another concrete example, right? I can't tell you how many times between August and November I was getting asked, you know, do you think that you can move people from protest to the elections, right? And I was like, well, the fundamental flaw with that, that way of thinking is that, like, I vote and I protest. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, it's not, so like, it's not like this leads to that. And that is the bigger thing. Yeah. Right? I was like, I'm not trying to move people from protesting to voting. I, we can we can do both. But but I think the flip side, the contradiction. Right. Because I, I believe that everything exists in contradiction. The contradiction is that actually also I think the, I think we have we have been really liberal. If Can I be honest, y'all? Can I be honest? Please. Mm, people going to be mad at me for this one, but I think it's true. It's like, we've also been liberal about people being able to self-identify with some of these titles, right? Right. It's like, I, I didn't self-identify as an organizer. I didn't self-appoint myself to leadership. Right. I didn't, you know, and the people that brought me up didn't allow me to just be an expert in one modality, right? It was like, if I was going to organize, I had to be up underneath somebody learning how to do it. I had to practice. I had to be accountable when I messed up, right? I had to receive praise when I got it right. If I wanted to do a direct action, I had to be up underneath somebody that knew how to do direct actions. I had to learn how to do it. I had to train. I had to practice. I had to go out here and make a fool of myself a few times and then be publicly accountable for the ways that I totally destroyed communities through thinking direct action was the only tactic we should be using. Mm -hmm. Right. Before I could talk to the press, I had to learn up underneath somebody. Right. And then right. I had to say some real dumb shit to the press <laughs> and then be like, I was wrong. You know what I mean? Like there's just there's a there's a something like to me, these these things are ways of life. Um, they're not just titles that you can try on. You can try. I mean, you can do that, but that's not that's not building power. That's not movement building. And so I think to me, there's something in 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 the contradictions and the in the complexities and in, in, in the in the thinking of it. That's like also you can be on a journey to figure out where your role is in movement. For sure. I certainly did. I did. I did every kind of front line you could think about. I did environmental stuff. I did the queer stuff. I did the women's stuff. I did the working class and labor stuff. I did the this. I did the black shit. I did all of it. Right. <laughs> So, so I get like that you might be on a journey to try to figure out where your 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 skill set is best used, or even what your skill set is. But the 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 glue to me that makes it work is you deciding that you're going to be excellent and accountable to more, to a community, not just like exactly. your homies. You know what I mean? Exactly. And so I think to me, it's not saying that you have to be the octopus. 
It's like you got to know which leg you are and you got to be really on on point about that right. leg. Because right. actually the also, head of the octopus is all of us. <laughs> that's right. And it's it's also true. This is why Ella Baker, Barbara Ransby, Grace Lee Boggs, yourself. There's always this question. Who are your people? Who yeah. are you accountable to? Where do you come from? Who are you going back to? Not I'm some free spirited, free wheeling, you know, individualist. I'm connected to the whole sea. I'm a drop in the ocean. So, and even if you're not an individualist, right? If no. you were like, I came in this with my three homegirls, my three homeboys, that's who I'm accountable to. That's not a base, right? That's not so, a base. so like, for example, all this, all this, all this glitz and glamour of, of being in the positionality of visibility and leadership and whatever that I'm in could go away tomorrow. And if it went away tomorrow, you could still come to Chattanooga, Tennessee and ask about me. Let's get it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, it means something when I'm in Chicago and I'm like, yeah, like I'm Rich Wallace's friend. They're like, oh, oh. Right, right, right. Okay. It matters. Like when I'm talking to lefty white kids that think they know everything. And I'm like, yeah, but like, I actually like studied up underneath Bill Ayers. And like, I'm not even talking about the stuff he knows. It's like, I went on eBay. I bought the weather underground, like VHS tapes. You know, like I, yeah, I, I, I was clear, real like, about is... some study up in this month, right? Like it matters. It matters that like at the, and let me tell you why it matters. Hold on, Ashley, real quick though. In this clout economy, this clout social atmosphere we live in, people think that that's just a name droppy. Like, oh, I know. No, you have to be able to know to that 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 person can say, no, that was a apprentice, a colleague of mine. That approach we right. have to it's have. It's about accountability. It's not proximity. Yes, yes. It's, it's, it's yeah because I I don't like that. Like I don't like yes. people that get credibility. People, I can tell you all day. People be like, yeah, I know Ash, and I'm like, I what? <laughs> that's <laughs> right? why I had to correct Bill earlier. No, like, that's right. I know of. That's I know right. Of Ash. Yeah. That's right. That happens all the time. But I think like, you know, to me, there's there's a couple of reasons why it really matters that I think is really critical and important to understand. One is that if if I it is a fatal flaw to be individualistic in that way. Because when if I if I was to approach the work as like, oh, I'm Ashley Wooder Henderson. I I I'm the descendant of some real bad mamma jammas and like I got this together. Then the second that I fail and I will fail because the only thing I'm perfect at is being imperfect. Mm-hmm. When I fail, then people are gonna be like, oh, you said you had that though. <laughs> That's right? what I'm talking about. Versus me coming with a even if even if I couldn't do it because it's my moral compass. As a strategist, I know that if I say, listen, y'all, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I like I need you. Because I mm-hmm. don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Then they roll up and they be like, babe, we got you. We yep. doing when this. Bill, we in Bill this talked to Bill talked to Adrian Marie Brown a few weeks ago. And one of the things she said, she's interested in people who 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 know that they don't know what yeah. the hell they're doing. I literally doing, but just that, called Adrian yesterday like sis. The, hell, the courage. I don't know cur- what I'm doing. Right. right? The courage to try things. That's yeah, all. Because like who wants to be who wants to be the first, last and only? But you know what, you know, you know, Ash, the thing I love, I want to go talking to you forever, but the thing I love about talking to you is you said before, 
we live in contradiction. That's how we move forward. And, and I got to give you a great quote. I was just reading Viet Thanh Nguyen's latest uh, novel. And somewhere in there, the narrator says, ah, contradiction, the universal body odor of humanity. And I thought, <laughs> oh, shit. You know? It's just that, true. It's, it's just so true. true. But but I got to tell you, you got to come to Chicago. Now, yeah. that we're getting, now that we're vaxxed and everything, got to come to Chicago. Malik and I will hook up with Barbara Rands and Beth Ritchie and yeah. a a Andrea Ritchie and a bunch of people will not only have a big social moment, but we'll also have a conversation uh, like this, but we'll go on and on about how we can support Highlander, how we can support each other, and we'll make that Chicago Highlander connection bigger and better. Yeah, right? you, I'm, you I'm absolutely And you can stay right here in this office. We got a, a bed right over <laughs> you there. You know, if I come and I don't stay with Sylvia, I might, I might never get invited well, back to Chicago. But we'll, we'll all get together at our house and Sylvia will have a big brunch and, and That's right. Dinner. That's well, right. Well, with that, I, I, we so appreciate the time you've given us and, and uh, the treat of this conversation. Um, we do have to end it here. Is there anything else you want to plug your, your, your social media or where we can find you? Yeah. I mean, you can find me on all the socials, um, Ashley Woodard Henderson or underscore Ash spelled out dash Lee underscore on, on most social media. Highlander is also all over social media. You can sign up for our newsletter. Um, the view from the Hill, it's like not only a good way to know what's going on in the, in, in Highlander, but also we amplify all the dope work that we're connected to or that our comrades and sister organizations are doing across the region, the country and the world. So check it out, sign up for the view from the Hill. You can see again, like we give, we give this freely because it belongs to the people. So exactly. if you, you know, you, you can, you can like, once we open up the, the world again, you can come and hang out on the 186 acres in the foothills of the Smokies. Let's do it. Road um, trip. Absolutely. Yeah. Come down. We'll, we'll you know, y'all are welcome, but also like our methodologies, we just dropped these dope methodology one pages in English and Spanish. So you can see, what we do and you can use it in your work. We've got curriculum like the mapping our futures curriculum around economics and governance. You can just scoop it. Um, and similarly for the movement for black lives, you can, so the Highlander website is highlandercenter.org. Uh, but you can also find a lot of resources and tools, the policy platform, the briefs for the policy platform, the orgs that are doing the work on the movement for black lives website, which is in the number four BL.org. Um, and then just some of the other toolkit stuff that I mentioned while we were wrapping was like the People's Movement Assemblies toolkit, which is peoplesmovementassemblies.org. Um, you can check out a lot of information on defundthepolice.org, both around like geographic realities, monetary realities and the demands and like who's doing what and how that's working. Um, and then you can find a lot of toolkits um, from people like Miriam Kaba and Andrea Ritchie and Beth Ritchie and others on interruptingcriminalization.org. Great. Well, I can't tell you how much respect and love I have for you, for what you do, for who you are, and for spending this time with us. We are deeply, deeply grateful. No, I love and appreciate y'all. Thank you so much for the space. Much love and be well. Before we leave today, I'd like to give you a homework assignment. Look back at your free write from earlier today. Okay. Get up now, go outside, and approach a proximate stranger in distress. Offer whatever you will. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast Ergo, and to Malik Aline, 
producer, co-conspirator, friend, comrade, and engineer. Under the Tree is hosted and written by Bill Ayers. Theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life an action verb, not a passive or quiet noun. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time.